0: Uh, the time you've been waiting for all week, moms, dads, the, the little quiz uh, for our visitors. We don't normally take quizzes, but this series, we're, we're doing a series where we're, looking, we're walking through our beliefs, what we believe as a church, who we are, distinctives there. And, and sometimes we, we may think we know more than we know, and we may not pursue something because we think we've got a hold on it maybe better than we do. And so these quizzes are really just for you. Just to give you an idea of of where you are and maybe what you're believing even unknowingly and so go ahead and take a moment and take this quiz. No one's gonna know the answers. no one's going to grade them except yourself. maybe your spouse looking over your shoulder they may look at them. go ahead and take a few moments and take this quiz on our on our ordinances. All right, I'm going to walk through these and um, we'll we'll hopefully uh, I wrote this this quiz and, and hopefully I will uh, answer all of these and make these very clear through the sermon and why we believe what we believe and what we believe. But an ordinance or sacrament will explain why we, why I at least, why we as a church list them as ordinances and not sacraments. We'll explain that in a moment. But is a physical celebration commanded by Christ in order to illustrate a spiritual reality. That's true. That's true. It's a picture of a spiritual reality. Baptism, Lord's Supper, as we'll talk about today, it is a picture uh, of salvation. It is a picture uh, of what we are trusting in, where where we have placed our trust. We believe, number two, that the bread and juice physically change into the body and the blood of Jesus as we participate in the Lord's Supper. False. False. Uh, We'll talk about that today. That is, there are some that believe that. That's called transubstantiation. If you want a million-dollar word, if you want to look theological, I guess, transubstantiation, that, that they physically change. There's also some that believe in consubstantiation, meaning that the presence of Christ is with you as you take it. We would hold to a, a that it represents, that it's a picture. In the, in the original language, Jesus in Matthew 26 and Luke 22, he's, he's physically present, he's holding the elements in his hand, and he says, these represent my body. These don't become my body. These aren't my body. They represent. It's a picture. It's a picture. Um, And we'll explain, hopefully I'll explain clearly why that's important. Someone say, what does it matter? Well, it, it matters greatly with regards to the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so, number three, in the Lord's Supper, we're declaring the fact that it is Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we are trusting in for our salvation. It's true. True. It's a public it's a public declaration. We're, we're, we'll see it today. We're reminding ourselves. We're, we're um, examining ourselves. We're hoping. All of that is, is contained in the Lord's Supper. For there is a right and a wrong way for a person to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's true. We'll, we'll see that today in verse 27 of, of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. There is a right and a wrong way to participate. There's, a, there's a, even a specific people, believers, that are to participate. Five, we believe saving grace is given, received through the participation in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Do we believe that these save you? No, that's false. We do not believe that these save you. These are, these are things that believers do to picture, again, to picture their salvation. We'll see clearly today, for instance, in Romans 6. Why do we, why, beyond, beyond it's what the word means, but why do we immerse people? Because you are buried with Jesus in baptism unto death. You are raised to walk in a brand new life. It is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is a picture of, of 2 Corinthians. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things are gone, new things to come there. It's a picture. What are we on? Six. Only believers are to participate in the Lord's Supper. That's true true believers and we'll see today the context is always in in the context is in the context of a church gathering believers gathering script number 7 scripture does not specify exactly how often we are to participate in the lord's supper that's true it's true it simply says regularly regularly there are some churches that participate every week there are some like ourselves we try to participate on the the first of the month uh, there are some that do it quarterly. The Bible is not explicit in how often. And so we we, we, we approach that by faith. We we approach that in wisdom. And, and again, um, we, we do it once a month here. Eight, the Lord's Supper was initiated by Christ at the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper was initiated by Christ at the Last Supper. True, true. You will see today, even in 1 Corinthians 11, it's a reference back to Matthew 26, to Luke 22, to Mark, where Mark 14, where Jesus again, and even there, a picture, it was a reminder, the, the, the last supper there, what, it, what Jesus, where he inaugurated what we would call the Lord's Supper, The Israel would celebrate the Passover, where when they were captive in Egypt, they, they spread the blood of a lamb over the doorposts of their homes, and when the angel of death came, he passed over any of the homes that had the blood of that lamb spread on its doorpost. It was a picture. They celebrated that annually to remind them of, of God delivering them from Egypt. And, and that Exodus, again, the Lord's Supper, there, there's something to be learned there. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that it's only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, it's through placing our faith in there and and, and, and having been transferred, as we, we've seen, from, from one domain to the other. We're remembering that. We're celebrating that. We're reminding ourselves of the great cost. Number uh, nine, Christ never commanded water baptism. False. False. He did. We'll see that today. Baptism is a is a command. It's an act of obedience. We'll see today that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot, fully, you cannot fully be a disciple or follower if you've not been baptized. There's an area of your life that you're holding back. You're holding back. We don't believe you're saved through baptism. I'm just simply saying you can't, fully bat, you can't fully. It would be like trying to say, I want to be on your team, but I don't want to wear your jersey. You say, well, you want to be on the team or not? You're on the team. Wear the jersey. And baptism is a commandment. It is an act of obedience. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no context we'll see today. No context. No exam in the New Testament, there's no sense of understanding of a believer not being baptized. It's your and and, and also we'll see today that it is an element of unity, an element of bond. There's we are all very different, but here's the one thing that every believer in here shares baptism. It's baptism. We all share that. So you can't say, you can't fully say you're in if you're withholding that. That's what I'm trying to say there, and we'll explain that today. 10. Baptism is a symbol to show a person is trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord for their salvation. That's true. True. Again, we said that Romans 6. It's a picture. It, it's just it's really a proclamation to the world that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. For the forgiveness of your sin. Number 11. Baptism by immersion is the best representation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what we see modeled in the Bible by the early church. That's true. That's true. You see see immersion. You, You see language such as, When he came up out of the water. You see pictures of, they'll say, let us go find water to baptize you. Well, you don't have, again, I'm not, I'm just saying that's why we hold to immersion. That's why we don't sprinkle. Because the the picture is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He was fully buried. Baptism 12 does not save a person, but rather is a way that a believer publicly identifies themselves as a follower of Christ. True, true, and we'll see we'll see. There is a parallel, we'll see today, between in the Old Testament, the people of God were marked out physically. They were a physical people, the Jews. They were marked out physically by circumcision. Well, the body of Christ is a, is a spiritual body, if you will, and, and the Bible talks to circumcision of the heart. Well, you can't necessarily see that, and, and baptism is that way of publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Christ. So hopefully, hopefully you did very well on those, and And as we look at these, some of these can be very um, controversial. Some of these these beliefs, when we explain what we believe and why we believe, can be very um, confrontational uh, because of maybe the way you were brought up, maybe the way you were taught. And sometimes the challenge is sometimes all of us, all of us, hear me, all of us have holes in our theology. The problem is we don't know where they are. I think for the rest of our lives as believers, for the, there, there are theologies that I hold today that I did not hold 10 years ago because the Word of God, I've understood better the Word of God today, and so I conform that. There are, there are theologies that you may hold today that, that maybe are wrong. You just don't know where they are. If I knew where they were, believe me, I'd repent of them and I'd change them. We're, we're doing the best we can under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the guidance to understand this Word. And again, as we do that, hear me, we, as we study this Word, we're not taking these quizzes so that we can brag that we got a 10 out of 10 or a whatever this was, a 12 out of 12 or whatever. We're not, we're not doing this so that then we can get all the Jeopardy questions right when, you, when the Bible category... I mean, that's one of the few categories, sports and Bible. Like if I'm watching Jeopardy, I pray just sports or Bible. Please, don't do literature. Don't do 16th century classical French. Get out of here. Do sports or Bible. I got a chance. I got a chance in front of my family to look intelligent. If you'll just throw those, or children's stories or something. Throw that one up there. But we're not, we're not studying. We don't study the Bible. We don't memorize the Bible so that we can get the questions right. We're not, we're not studying. We're not laboring to, to, to just for information. It, what, what we're seeking is transformation. What we're seeking is to submit ourselves under the Word of God that, that our lives would begin to conform to the Word of God, not conform the Word of God to our lives. See, that there's a lot of people who sit in judgment over the Word of God. They approach the Word of God and they say, well, let me see what it says. And depending on what it says, then I'll do it or not. No, no, we come to the Word of God in a a spirit of submission because we want to subject ourselves to whatever the Word says. By the power of the Spirit living in us, that's why we have the Spirit. The the goal, again, if you were to go to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, training, and rebuking in righteousness. Don't stop there, because here's why, verse 17. So that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The, The Word of God equips us. It sustains us. Matthew 4, Jesus equated it to physical food. It's that important. But it's not simply just to inform The goal is to transform. If you simply come and listen to a sermon, if you simply read the Word of God, shut the book and set it aside and say, I'm done with that, you've missed the whole point. If you spend your whole life studying the Word of God and it's only for information, you've missed the whole point. The goal is that we, you and I as believers, would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's sanctification. One day, one day the promise held out for us, and you see it clearly in Romans 8, 28 through 30. There's a process. Those whom he predestined, he sanctified, and one day will glorify. In the Greek, it is an unbreakable chain. One day you and I will look exactly like Christ. That's the beauty, glorification. Get rid of this body. This, Paul says in Romans seven twenty-four: "O oh, wretched man than I, who will deliver me from this body of death? The answer is Christ. One day. There'll be no more battle with sin. That's the promise. But but until then, we're to be moving as Christians towards that goal. We're not comfortable with our sin. We're not content with our sin. Will we sin? Yes. But that doesn't mean I'm okay with it. That doesn't mean I coddle it. The Spirit of God in me actually causes me to wage war on it. And so even here, again, the the result result of all of this, if, if, if as we grow and as we're being discipled, if arrogance is rooting up in our heart, then you're missing the point. If love is welling up in our heart as we grow, now you've hit the mark. Again, Paul is very clear. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The, the result, the result of our sanctification, the result of our study, the result of our placing ourselves under the Word of God, even, even here, it's not to be arrogant towards people that we maybe may be believe differently or maybe even they're wrong. I don't know. But it's not a, for us to be arrogant toward them. It's for us to be loving. You know, The, the result of studying this Word, if it's not producing humility, then, then we're missing the point. Because the more I study this word, here's what I realize, the more I realize I don't know this word. It's like every layer that I peel off, I realize that there's so many more layers. And and in humility, I'm, I'm I'm holding these beliefs by faith. But listen, if you can show me in the word of God where I'm wrong, believe me, I will repent and I will pursue that truth. And every single one of us as believers We come to the word humbly, and I come today as in all of these humbly, saying this is what we believe the word of God says. And we say that with humility, but hopefully we say that with grace. We're seeking truth. We're constantly seeking truth. Because the challenge for all of us is to deviate. The tendency for all of us is to deviate. And the Word of God, even these gatherings, brings us back to the plumb line. And, and as we, tr- I was reading yesterday, I was reading a book, and it said that the average American is, is, is introduced to 3,500 advertisements a day. 3,500. And the point was they were 3,500. And and what is that? Those advertisements, they are geared to get you to think a certain way and behave a certain way. 3,500 average. And if we don't have the Word of God, again, two minutes of the Word of God a day isn't fighting 3,500 advertisements. Guess what? Those at 3,500 advertisements, they're going to conform your mind to think like the world. That's what's going to conform your mind. That's why we need this Word. And, and so today, as we again, as we, as we look at even today, ordinances, what we're going to call ordinances, the, the challenge is to, to conform our thinking regarding these to what the Word of God reveals. Not what we've been taught, not what tradition has told us, but come to the Word of God and say, what does the Word say? This is about truth. Even here with these ordinances, it's not about preference. It's about truth. And and we hold here, we hold to two what we will call ordinances. They are this. They are Lord's Supper and they are baptism. Some denominations hold to more. Some groups of believers hold to, to seven, some hold to five, some hold to less. Some of you, again, some of you, even, even when I say ordinance, you say, what is that? Some of you grew up in, in cultures where they were called sacraments, sacraments. And and the the word sacrament, here's why, here's why I do not use that word, and I'm speaking for myself. I know some of you love that word some of you hold to that word and some of you don't mean when you say by that word what what is really meant by it but that's the danger because words have meaning the word sacrament we get the word sacred from that from that word and and what and it's not that i'm not saying these aren't sacred the problem is this the issue is deeper the word sacrament, over time, it began to confer the meaning that there was grace given to the individual who participated in that. So when you participate in the Lord's Supper, there was an extra amount of grace given to you, even salvific grace. That when you participate in the baptism, you had had to participate in baptism because that's where God saved a person, or that's where grace was inferred upon a person. And again, when you say the word sacrament, that's what many people, it's sacred. Why? Because there's grace imparted through it. That's what people believe. We would, I do not use that word because I don't want to misinform somebody about them. Are they sacred? They are. But we do not believe these save somebody. They're pictures of somebody who has been saved. These are things that saved individuals are a part of, not that individuals are a part of in order to get saved. Does That make sense, and so words have meaning, and so we, we need to be very careful because again, what you mean by something and somebody what somebody else means by something may be different, but you're using the same word, and we need to be careful. We need to understand that the, that's why we say ordinances again, councils and, and on all these catechisms throughout church history they've they've really battled over these things because, because there are huge implications. Is somebody saved? By partaking in the Lord's Supper? Biblically, the answer is no. But historically, groups of people who call themselves believers have said yes. Because of tradition. Is somebody saved through baptism? The Bible would say no. There are groups of people who call themselves believers. I'm not doubting necessarily their salvation as much as I'm saying they're wrong in their approach to baptism. If baptism saves, for instance, if baptism saves, the thief on the cross has got a serious problem. Because Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. No baptism. No baptism. I'm not saying baptism is unimportant. I'm simply saying it doesn't save you. We we hold to a belief that the ordinance in and of itself participation in and of it does not save you. It doesn't merit God's favor. It doesn't earn you anything. It's a picture. It's a declaration. Is it important? Immensely important. Is baptism important? Is Lord's Supper? They're both immensely important. You are picturing to a world around you what you are trusting in. Beyond that, when you start... Picture, when they start conferring grace, the other thing we'll see today is you're attacking the sufficiency and the completed work of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus works, is Jesus Christ's work completed, or do you have to add to it? Big deal. And so, so as we approach these, understand, the tendency is for us is to check out and say it doesn't matter. It matters. Truth always matters. We don't want to send to the world a wrong message, especially with regards to how your sins are forgiven and what it is we're trusting in. And so today, Lord's Supper, you'll see on your handout, Lord's Supper, I want to start with the Lord's Supper. And I, I want to answer some questions today for us regarding the Lord's Supper and baptism. And you see the, I'm keeping, I'm looking at my watch because my little clock on here, the battery died. That's bad news for y'all. So I'm going to look at my watch. What is the purpose? Number one, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, and we read this passage when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We could read Matthew 26, we could read Mark 14, Luke 22. These are all pictures in the Gospels of the Last Supper when Jesus instituted if you will, the Lord's Supper, and when he had his disciples with him, and he took the bread, and he holds it up, and he says, this, this bread represents my body, and this juice this, and wine in that day, it would have been represents my, my blood that I'm about to pour out on your behalf, on, on, to cover sins, because Hebrews 9, says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that that setting is what Paul here in 1 Corinthians is picturing, is hearkening them back to. And he says, starting in verse 23 of chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, again, in that setting, Jesus had told them, Hey, when I dip this morsel, and whoever I give it to, that's the one who's going to betray me. Judas would be the one that received that morsel. He was the one that would that would betray Jesus again in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss. In the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of as me, and listen, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I want to give us a picture here, and I'll read 27 through 32 in a moment as I make these points, but I want us to give us a picture, a full picture. Because over here, we don't go so far as to say it infers grace and it saves you, but I don't want us to go as far over here on the other end to where we say then it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. Huge implications, huge importance here with regards to the Lord's Supper and baptism. Our tendency, again, even that, is to lose uh, sight of this significance. That's why, again, Jesus said, as often as you do it in remembrance, we tend to forget and so, so, again, the first thing you see in your handout is the Lord's Supper is a time of remembering. It's a time of remembering. We, we saw that clearly in verses 24 and 25. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Literally, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering a completed act that has been done in the past. All of, all of Israel, if you were to look at their history, they had all these festivals and, and all these annual occurrences and the Feast of Tabernacles and the tents and all these different things. And what was the purpose? The purpose was to remind future generations of Israel's past. They were all done to declare, to remind to Israel, to remind Israel of God's phenomenal, awesome work in the past and the integral part that God had played in their history. All of the feasts, all of those festivals, they were centered around the greatness of God to remind Israel and future generations, here's here's the main player in your history, and it's your God. All of the festivals, all of the feasts were geared around reminding them. Even the Passover feast, which is where they were when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's Supper, as I said, it was reminding them of their exodus from Egypt and when when the plague of the death of the firstborn son came and they said, listen, slaughter a lamb, spread the the blood over the doorframe of your house. When the angel of death comes, any home that has this blood spread over its doorposts, he'll pass over. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of my salvation, your salvation. By faith they spread that blood on the door frames of their homes, knowing this, if it didn't happen that way, guess who Pharaoh was coming after? Listen, by faith, I have applied, if you will, the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed at Calvary to the the sin of my life. The payment, I've applied Jesus' payment to my sin debt. It's a time that Lord's Supper hearkens my mind back to that of God's activity on my behalf, that the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a completed act. Jesus Christ is my substitute by faith. I have admitted that I'm a sinner. I've repented of that sin, and I've confessed that, Jesus, it's your work alone that can forgive me of that sin. Again, we're remembering. We're remembering the high cost of our sin at the Lord's Supper. We're remembering We're hearkening our our hearts and our minds back to the the source of our salvation. But but it's also, the Lord's Supper is a time of examining. Not a remembrance, but examining. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself... And in so doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eat and drinks judgment on himself. If he does not judge the body rightly. For this many, many among you are weak and sick and a number asleep. The word dead. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. When, when we, that's why when we partake of the Lord's Supper, I, I, I try to be very clear to quote-unquote fence the table. I, I do not want any of us believers or non, to partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and in doing so, drink judgment upon yourself. And in that day, there were believers that were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They were treating it as a a feast, and they were eating it just to get full. But there's also an unworthy manner, we'll see in a moment, of non-believers. A non-believer should not, do not, take the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper involves a deep confession of sin. sin. It, It involves looking at the cross and the reality of the cross and seeing my sin and your sin falling upon someone who had no sin, namely Jesus Christ. And realizing it was my sin that put him there. It was your sin that put him there. The cross, again, the cross is a, is a representation, again, I dare say not of our worth. It's a, it's a testimony to God's worth. It's a, it's a testimony to my sin and your sin. And, and that's, that's what we're recalling as well in, in, in the Lord's Supper, not just sin in general. It's real easy, and here's what our tendency is. It's real easy for us to say, oh, I'm a sinner, forgive me. No, no, here, here's what we do in the Lord's Supper. We, we call out specific sin. Examine your, examine your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to put His finger on specific sin. Things that we've said this past week that weren't in love. Thoughts that we had about another individual that were not edifying. Edifying. Images that we've looked at on the TV or the internet that would not be wholesome or or would be contradictory to God's word. Actions that we've taken that fall short of the glory of God or fall short of love toward our neighbor. Maybe it's putting our finger on bitterness that we hold toward another individual. Maybe it's gossip. The Lord's Supper is a time for the Holy Spirit for us to pause and allow the Holy Spirit to put His finger on those things. Not just blanket, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. No, no, forgive me for this sin. Forgive me for that sin. That's what the Lord's Supper offers us, a time to examine ourselves and to repent of not just sin in general, but of specific sin. To be sure there are sins that we commit that we forget. And that's why annually they would, they would offer sacrifices annually in Israel to deal with that. Because there would be sins that we would, that we would not notice or be mindful of. But the, the part of the taking of the Lord's Supper is to pause and give, give the Holy Spirit time to examine and bring to mind specific sin. Not just general sin. So not only remembering and examining, but it's a time of hoping. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. It's a time for us to hearken back to the source of our hope. You and I are saved in hope. Go to Romans 8. We are saved in that which to us is unseen. We're looking forward to that which is unseen. We hope. 11.1 11 one of Hebrews says, "Faith is the assurance of things seen; the confidence of things uh, th- faith is the assurance of things unseen; the confidence of things hoped for." We're reminding ourselves of our hope. Our hope is gospel centered; it's death, burial, resurrection of Christ centered. It's it's kingdom of God centered, not kingdom of this world centered. We're we're declaring and we're reminding ourselves that it's. Through the work of another that you and I have been set free from our sin. Not of works. It's by grace through faith. It's a reminder that I'm no longer a slave to sin. It's a reminder. So why? We can walk out of here in spite of our our sin, in spite of what this world throws at us, in spite of what Satan tells us. We can walk out of here a smile on our face because the work of Jesus Christ has this title above it. Finished. Completed. And and not only that, look at what it says. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Until He comes. We're waiting for His return. We're celebrating together that you and I have been set free from the penalty, not only the penalty of sin, but listen, the power of sin. You don't have to sin. Romans 8 12, Galatians 5 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We've been given the power to not sin. We're reminding ourselves that. We're reminding ourselves that our hope is in the completed work of another. It's not in my, it's not in my ability to, it's not in my ability to not sin. It's not in my ability to do good things. It's in the work of Christ. That work is sufficient. But but not only remembering, examining, and hoping, it's also a time of recommitting. Recommitting. And I think this is an aspect that is is really lost in in the Lord's Supper. It's a time of recommitting to the Lord, but it's also a time of recommitting to the body of Christ. It's encouraging each other to persevere. We're looking around us and realizing we're not in this alone. We're also looking around and saying that, that we're one body, that reminding us of the family. We're reminding ourselves of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we're also reminding if, if God forgives one another, then we ought to forgive one another. And we ought to, we ought to receive that forgiveness. Because, again, this is a family time. It is a family commitment. And and in the Lord's Supper, we're looking back at a completed work. We're reminding ourselves that it's not up to me to be saved or to remain saved. It is the work of God. It is the work of God. And and this is where, again, this is where we have to be careful And why what we believe about the Lord's Supper is so important. Because, as I mentioned earlier... One example is, is, is what we would call transubstantiation, where the elements physically change to the body and the blood of Jesus. And, and, and people, again, they love to argue over this. I'm not here to argue over this. I'm simply to tell you why we don't believe this. Because it's not a point where you just say, who cares? We should care. Because this is bigger. It's bigger than just simply a theological discussion that we can win or lose. There are huge ramifications for this. Not only for this, but the f- sufficiency of the gospel. Because if, if again, what, what you're essentially saying is that you're crucifying Christ all over again whenever you take those elements. What you're saying is that Hebrews 10 is not true, where it says Jesus Christ suffered once for all. Once for all. He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. The reality is, if you read if you read the book of Hebrews, that's what he, the writer of Hebrews, sets Jesus apart as the awesome, all sufficient um, uh, prophet, priest, and king, because their priests would offer sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again, daily. Weekly, monthly, year, annual, all over and over. Why? Because the Bible is very clear. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient to take away the sins of the world. And then here you have, in contrast to that, you have Jesus Christ who comes on the stage and offers himself once for all. Do you see the sufficiency? Do you see why it matters? We're not sacrificing Christ all over again. His one time death was sufficient for the sins of the whole world if you would repent and follow him. So, so I hope you see why it matters. Again, again, then then if, if you're re sacrificing Christ all over again, then grace is now imparted through. That's why these that's why these groups take the Lord's Supper so often, because grace is imparted and salvation is parted versus harkening back to a one-time completed act. Th- that's why we don't hold to that. And-, and the challenge is you now receive grace through your work. Again, this is why the reformers and-, and there's so many people there's why people gave their lives over because you do not receive God's grace through your work. It is by grace you are saved through faith and not by works. Ephesians 2 eight9. Again, why? Because we want to boast. We want to earn it. And beyond that, hear me. It presents Christ's work, as I've said, as unfinished. Jesus himself declared in John 19:30 it is finished. Done. You don't need to sacrifice over and over. That's what made Christ superior. Again, the whole book of Hebrews, he spends the the greater chunk of Hebrews showing you why Jesus Christ is the superior priest. Never mind the fact that Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 17 verse 10 forbids Israel from drinking blood. So now you would have, essentially, you would have Jesus commanding something that the law forbid. It's a big deal. Truth matters. Christ's work is finished. The payment and the sacrifice for sin has been made in full. And that's what we're celebrating. There's a big difference between celebrating a completed work and celebrating work that I've got to participate in. And you diminish, again, the reason why it matters is you diminish the work of Christ. Christ and you're drawn right back into the Old Testament system of, work, of, of, of sacrificing these things over and over and over and over. And, and again, we have been adopted, sealed, indwelt, period, if you're a believer in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, period. Status change. Kingdom Change. Position change, everything. You have been adopted, and the Spirit. We saw that the Spirit of God is given to us. Romans eight fifteen. The Spirit is given to us in which we cry, Abba, Father. He's given us the Spirit of adoption. Why? Because we're hoping to one day we will get that adoption in full. And, and I've used this illustration before, but again, the Lord's Supper reminds us to keep hoping. Why? Because we, It's like we, we. It's like we were in Russia. I'm not picking on Russia. I'm just like we were in Russia, and we were an orphan. And a family in America fills out all the paperwork, pays the, pays the fee, and they adopt they adopt you. Russia puts you on a plane and sends you to your. Cha- now I get it. In America, we would go get them. Don't. But in this case, stick with the illustration. They fly you back to America. When you're on that plane, have you received the fullness yet? Are you adopted? Yes. Have you received the fullness of that adoption yet? No. Guess what? There's coming, a, there's coming an, in a matter of hours. You're going to land, Lord willing, in America. The family is going to open up their arms. They're going to receive you in. At that moment, you would have received the full adoption. Here, brother and sister in Christ, we're on a plane. We're flying home. We've been adopted. The adoption's finalized. There's coming a day where we're going to stand before our Savior and it's at that moment we will receive the fullness of our adoption. That's when we'll receive the fullness. The Bible is very clear. Through much tribulation, through much tribulation, Revelation says, a person will enter the kingdom of God. And Satan wants you to not trust in Christ through that tribulation. He wants you to think that you're not saved or feel unloved through that. And we gather Regularly, and we partake in the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves that Satan is a liar. That Jesus Christ's work is completed. And that's why we say the biblical picture of the Lord's salvation is that of a meal that represents salvation. It represents salvation. Again, when he says in Matthew 26 and Mark and Luke 22 this is my body or this is my blood, that word is used in the New Testament and it translates represents. This represents my body. This represents my blood. Literally, Jesus is standing there with these in his hand and he's saying, this is a picture. You're going to do this regularly to remind you of the high cost at which your sin was forgiven. That's the purpose to remember, to examine, to reflect, to hope. Awesome picture. Hugely, hugely important. But, but not only that, who can participate in the Lord's Supper? You think about everything that we just looked at, I think the answer is very clear, only believers. Only believers. Why? It's a picture of our salvation. an an, an unbeliever in Christ, someone who does not trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they got nothing to celebrate. There's, not, you know, again, beyond the fact that all throughout the New Testament, you see them celebrating the Lord's Supper in the context of gatherings. It's gatherings. This is believers. Side note, some churches, some churches require membership in order for you to participate in the Lord's Supper with them. That would be a, what's, what's again, I'm just in, closed. That would be called a closed view. We do not hold to that. If you're, a, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're here from another city, another town, whatever, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your family. You're welcome to partake. We, that would be called an open, what would be called open view. I'm not saying they're wrong for that. I, I get the I get the 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 it's commendable position. I understand what they're saying, but we would hold if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're 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 welcome to partake of the elements, your family. But it, but it's a believer's thing. Be to be sure. Listen. Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, there's a way for a, to be done unworthily. A believer not examining themselves, a believer coming in here flipping about their sin, careless about their sin, um, wantedly sinning, and you walk up here to this table and think you're going to take the Lord's Supper, you, there's a problem. The Bible is very clear. You're taking it in an unworthy manner. But also an unbeliever partaking the Lord's Supper would be an unworthy way. I mean, if you go back to as far as believers and, and if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, and I'll read this. It says, if you, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. I mean, if we think we can come in here and, and live however we want to live out there and then come in here and worship and we think God's going to receive it, we're wrong. You can't just worship in any way. There's a right way. There's a reverent way. And what I mean there is dealing with sin. Not perfect, but not knowing that we have sin and that we're not dealing with that sin. And think that we're going to come in here and God's going to receive our worship. Again, Paul makes a very clear warning. Examine yourself. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number dead. Ananias and Sapphira learned a hard lesson. I mean, I I imagine that if somebody walked up here, took the Lord's Supper, and they just fell out dead. What'd that do to this church? Not exactly the recipe for church growth. Like go to Odessa and you die. But but my point is that's the seriousness in which the Lord that's the seriousness of worship. So so again, this is for believers. And and I would say repentant, you know, not not believers who are just casual about their sin and living in unrepentant sin, which is a whole other discussion in and of itself. Third, how often are we to partake of the Lord's Supper? Scripture does not explicitly reference, but it simply says as often, As regularly, as all it says, if you go to Acts 20, verse 7, it is very clear in the early church that every time they gathered for worship, they took of the Lord's Supper. And again, that's where our worship on Sunday, why we worship on Sunday, it was the habit of the early church to worship on the first day of the week in commemorance of the Lord's resurrection. And whenever they gathered, they took the Lord's Supper. And Scripture is clear that it was participated regularly. But again, why? Because it's important. It's a big deal. And and we're remembering, again, we're remembering God's grace. It's a time to examine ourselves. It's a time to renew our hope. It's a time to encourage. It's a time to reflect. The completed work of Christ, the Lord's Supper, is a huge deal. It's a time even for us as a body to experience unity. All of us are coming to one table in, in, in those days I, I get it now because of allergies and germs and all this other stuff. you would never think about this, but literally there would be there would, they were eating from one, one lump, taking your piece off from one lump, literally drinking from one cup, unity. Now, if I did that today, you would pass. You would pass in a heartbeat. Hey, come up here and drink it. I ain't drinking after those guys. But you see the unity? The thing that unites us in the midst of all our differences is this. One Savior. One sacrifice. And what we'll see in a moment, even with regards to unity, one baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So even in baptism, again, as we move to baptism... These, these intertwine so, um, with such importance because of what they picture. What is the importance of baptism? Well, if you were to go back to, to Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus commands it. He says, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So baptism is intricately intertwined with discipleship. And that is the picture that you see throughout the New Testament. If you go to to, um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent, each of you, and be baptized. You go down to verse 41, so then those who had received the word were baptized. You go over to chapter 8. This is just a couple examples. I don't want to I don't want to I could take your whole afternoon reading these, but but then they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Christ. They were being baptized men and women alike. It is attached to belief. Belief. What you're declaring in your baptism is your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's it's an identification you see on your handout. You're publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what you're doing in your baptism. That's what we believe about baptism. There there would be no no instance in the New Testament where a believer would not have been baptized. Baptized. And again you, there's all kinds of in today again today there's some cultural things I mean in that day to be back to profess Christ as savior and lord and to be baptized in many regards meant you were going to die There's cultures today that exist in our world even today that that again to publicly profess Christ to go forward and renounce your sins and to follow Christ it, it in many ways it comes with a huge price. In our culture, that's not always the case. And specifically with children, it's very easy to just profess Christ. It's very easy for an adult just to say, oh, I believe Christ. And so here, and again, we we have steps in our culture and even in this church, a, a child uh, wants to get baptized, there's a book that we'll give you as parents to walk through as parents and to make sure that this child fully understands what they're doing. As adults, I will have conversations, in-depth conversation with you before I baptize you to make sure you understand what you're doing, to make sure that you are saved. Why? Because it doesn't really come for a, with a cost. It's real easy just to say it. And so, yeah, there's a pause In today's world, but my point is this if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought to be baptized. There's there's no context where, if you're a follower, and and here, if you put the Word of God together, and and this statement is on your notes, and I don't mean to hurt people's feelings or, or offend, but you cannot fully follow Christ without being baptized. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm saying there's a part there, you're volitionally choosing to disobey. You're choosing to disobey the Word of God. I'm not saying you're not saved, I'm simply saying you're choosing to disobey. You're, you're choosing to not publicly identify yourself with a group of believers. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, it's, it's a unity issue. He says, for even as the body is one, yet it has many members, and all are members of the body. Though they are many, they are one body, so also is Christ. Listen, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, they were all made to drink of one spirit. Do you see the unity? In all of our differences, here's what we as believers share. Baptism. Baptism. Ephesians, Ephesians, Ephesians 4.3 3. Makes the, same, makes the same statement. Listen to what he says. Being diligent, preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And, and hear me, baptism boils down, you see it on your handout, to obedience. Boils down to obedience. Unashamedly declaring that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So so that's the importance of baptism. What's the message communicated in baptism? Well, again, go to Romans 6. It's clearly, for the sake of time, you go there on your own for Romans 6. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a symbol, you see it on your handout, of our salvation through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's a symbol. It's not a work. It's a symbol of trusting in a completed work. You're celebrating the completed work of Christ. And, and you see it on your handout, in baptism, you are getting an opportunity to preach the gospel that you have believed. You're literally preaching. That's why when, when people schedule a baptism, bring your friends, bring your family, especially bring those friends and family who are lost. Why? Because you're preaching to them the gospel. You're telling them, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and it's His work alone that saves me. You're preaching the gospel. That's why we believe, you see on your handout, only believers are to be baptized. What mode of baptism is accurate? That's the third question. And again, much division here, but you see throughout Scripture, one baptism. If That's why we, we immerse, and we would require our members to be immersed. We don't want to be a body where, well, I was immersed, or I was dipped, or I was sprinkled, or I was this, or I was that. You see that this disunity there. That's why we hold, that's why we ask people to be immersed. Never mind the fact that the word baptism, we get, th- that word is, is baptisma in the Greek. And literally, we've taken the Greek and just made it our English word. And the word, if you trace it, it means to immerse. Listen, the word was used to describe the sinking of a ship. You don't sink a ship with sprinkling on it. I'm not trying to be funny and I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just simply saying, again, it was used to drown someone. It it was used to perish in the water. That's, That's why we immerse. Jesus didn't have a little bit, I'm not trying to be cute, but he did not have a little bit of dirt sprinkled on his head. He was buried. It's a big deal. You can go to Acts chapter 8 and see a picture. Again, it's the gospel, completely buried. The word means completely buried. Again, in, in Acts 8, he, he, he's, he it's a clear picture that they needed a bunch of water. They needed a good bit of water. Acts 8, verse 38. He um, This is the Ethiopian eunuch there in Philip, and he says... And he ordered the chariot to stop and both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water. There's a picture there. And and we baptize because immersion is the best picture not only of the biblical model but of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We hold to that. And and real quickly... um, not to not to flood my email, not to flood my inbox with emails. I want to answer the question. What about infant baptism? And I run into this a lot. You run into this to a lot of people who were baptized as infants, and that's their reasoning for not being baptized. Oh, I was baptized as an infant. Okay. What, what we what we have seen and shown is that in the New Testament and, and I want to be very careful here and but yet quick baptism is for those who have been born again not simply those who have been born please hear me it is for those who have been born again okay and and again there is a and that's where I would disagree with those who practice infant baptism. And again, brief history, more than you want to know, but just so you know, in the pre-Reformation days, the church and the state were together. They were not separated. And what this means is to be a citizen of the state was to be a citizen of the church. And so when you were born, you became a member of the church and a citizen of the state. And and so they would baptize them. And, and, and then the Reformation comes in, and they're saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Baptism is only for believers, and and so. But within that context, this, they continued to do infant baptisms because it was a state church issue. And again, as as tradition and 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 these practices are hard to let go of, it continued. But others, again, there are other denominations. There are some denominations who wouldn't say that baptism saves, but it's a a way to look forward to future faith. It's a way to kind of invite that child into the covenant. But my point is, that's very confusing. Very confusing, and I believe it builds false assurances. Why? Because I have no guarantees that my children will repent of their sin and be saved. And I don't want to give them a false assurance of that by them saying, well, I was ba- you baptized me when I was... Okay? Again, they, they do it in the context of the covenant because in the Old Testament, what marked a Jewish person off as belonging to the people of God? Circumcision. Circumcision. And, and again, that was done to infants, and it marked them off as being a people of God. So again, they say, well, the new in the new covenant marker... They translate that to say, well, that's just that we baptize as infants because that's the same as in the Old Testament when they marked them off as the people of God. The problem is that, again, the problem with that, and you see this in Romans 4.11 with, with Abraham and the people from both sides go to the same passage. The problem with that, if you look at Colossians 2.11, and we'll study Colossians, Lord willing, when we're in two weeks we'll start. But it says, and in him... You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Clearly, there's a distinction. Without hands. Here's what Paul was getting at. The Old Testament circumcision, physical circumcision, done with hands of men. New Testament, done in the Spirit. There's a difference. In the Old Testament... They were a physical people of God. In the New Testament, you're a spiritual, if you will, people of God. Very different. And again, in the circumcision of the heart, Paul talks about it's where Christ transforms your heart. He cleans, he cleans your heart. He says Jeremiah 31 is equal 36. I'll give them a new heart and put my Spirit in them. Baptism. What we're doing when we get baptized is we are showing publicly that our heart, which is not public, has been circumcised see what i'm saying it's a new heart that's why we wait that's why we don't baptize as infants because they're not believers or is there a parallel certainly there's a parallel but you don't become a you do not become a member of the people of god simply by birth and again it's a it's a physical marker of a spiritual birth that's what baptism is you see on your handout. And you and I can't do anything to guarantee that our children will repent and turn to Christ. We can't grandfather them into the covenant. Do we aim them there? Do we guide them there? Sure. But we can't make someone saved. Should we want them to repent of their sins and follow Christ? That ought to be, we'll see it next week with regards to the theology of the family. That ought to be the number one goal of our family. To see that, to desire that, but I can't guarantee it. So I hope today that we can walk out of here in understanding these are these are they they don't they don't save but they're but they're but they're immensely important. They're pictures. And if you're a believer today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I, I would challenge you as strongly as I can to get baptized. And I equate it when I talk to people with this ring. This ring does not make me married. I could put that ring right there. I could walk around the rest of my life. Am I married to Karen Basham? I am. What does this ring do? This ring simply tells the world, stay away. That's all it does. You know what this ring says? That's what Karen would say it means. This ring says this. You know what it says? He belongs to somebody else. You know what this ring says? He's spoken for. You know what baptism says? You're spoken for. doesn't save you. It says you're spoken for. And and again, I I, I understand my dad worked in construction and he didn't wear his wedding ring because of the hazards, but I, I don't, in my mind, I don't understand why a guy wouldn't want to tell the world. Now, they may lose it or whatever, I get it. Your fingers get bigger, whatever. Why would you be ashamed to tell the world that you're married? Why would you want to hide that? Believer, why would you not want to tell the world that you're married? I'm not saying every guy that doesn't wear his ring is ashamed to tell the world. That's not what I'm saying. It's a hard issue. But I'm asking, why as a believer, why would you wait? Why would you not take advantage of a chance to preach the gospel publicly? And if you're here today and you're not a believer, as strongly as I can tell you, as Paul says in Second Corinthians 5, I beg you, there's only one way to be reconciled to God. Your sins have separated you from God. There's one way to be reconciled to God, and that's through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. There's only one way you enter the kingdom or the people of God today, and it's through faith in Jesus Christ. The road is very narrow. It's one lane, Jesus Christ. And if you've done that, get baptized. Again, why? Because it's, a, it's not only as a profession, it's a unity issue. It's a unity as a family. All in.